This week, let's talk about brand and positioning, but we'll go beyond logos, fonts and colours and look at what branding is really about. My guest is David O'Hearns and this is episode 289 of the Marketing and Finance Podcast. This podcast is all about marketing your business and growing your business and for talking about all things finance. I'm Roger Edwards, a consultant, speaker and trainer from Edinburgh, helping you keep your marketing simple. Hello and welcome to the Marketing and Finance Podcast. Thank you as always, for downloading or streaming the show. You know, I really do appreciate you taking the time to plugging me and my guests into your earphones. Before we get started talking to David O'Hearns about branding, I'd just like to ask you if you'd do me a quick favour. It only takes a minute. Please leave me a review on iTunes. It really helps to widen the distribution of the show and allows more people to discover it, more people to listen to it, and then that gives me more ideas for more guests and more episodes in the future. So please visit rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash iTunes and quickly leave a review. And a five-star rating would be fantastic. Branding has always been one of my favourite subjects, but unfortunately, due to programmes on TV like The Apprentice, a lot of people think that branding is just about having a logo or a specific font or a specific colour. Branding is so much more than just the logos, the fonts and the colours. And you need to think about tone of voice. You need to think about values. You need to think about positioning. And this week, David Hearns is going to guide us through the branding process. So let's get straight into that interview with David right here on the Marketing and Finance Podcast. Dave, welcome to the Marketing and Finance Podcast. Hi, good afternoon. Great to uh, be speaking with you today. So, Dave, where are we Zooming each other from? Now, I'm in Edinburgh, as always. And I'm in South Manchester. Um, Oh, South Manchester. That's the part of the world that I was born and grew up in. Uh, I've obviously been up here in Scotland for over 30 years, but I have a lot of uh, fond memories of growing up in the Northwest. Yeah, no, it's a, a great place to live. I, I did study towards Newcastle and did a placement in Edinburgh, as it happens. Oh, right, okay. Um, but then headed back to, to Manchester to um, hopefully carve out a career, which I seem to have done. So Dave, you run a company called Dawn Creative, and you're mainly there to help people develop their brand, position themselves effectively, and, and to attract the right customers. And I'd really like to talk to you a little bit about how the business developed and focus a little bit more about what you do. But before we get into that, Dave, give me a little bit of background about yourself, where you came from, how your career developed, and basically what makes Dave O'Hearns tick? So I mentioned just a few minutes ago that I studied in Newcastle. Mm-hmm. Um, so I graduated uh, HND in graphic design and then moved back home to South Manchester I was fortunate enough to get a position as a junior designer 25 years ago and worked for an agency there for about five years. I learned a hell of a lot in in those first five years, realized how little you actually knew. I built up my skills over those first five years, moved on to a, a larger marketing and promotions company in Manchester. And then 
moved into freelance for a little while before setting up my first agency with a couple of other people at the age of 28. Three of us ran that for 11 years or so, grew it to about 16, 17 people. Then we had some complications with shareholdings and a few disputes, and it led me to say, I think I'll do my own thing. And that's when I chose to set up Dawn, which is now eight years old. And was there a specific uh, moment when you had that revelation that you wanted to set up your own agency, or was it mainly to do with those uh, issues that you spoke about around shareholdings and and things? It was was mainly the issues. We had a good agency, you know, the the three of us had set up a good good agency and it was was going in the right direction. So I was quite happy leading it as creative director um, and having a shareholding. But as these things happen and as you learn in business, different shareholdings mean different things and people want to do different things and go in different directions and I wasn't comfortable with the situation so um, I decided just to bow out and leave leave them to it and um, go it alone with 100% ownership and and take it in the direction I wanted to take a, a brand agency. And I've had quite a few people on the show over the years from agencies. And I'm trying to remember back now. I'm not convinced that I've had somebody on the show who's as focused on brand as perhaps you are and as perhaps Dawn Creative is. I've had quite a lot of people from what I would describe more as the advertising end of the marketing mix agencies rather than agencies helping people to come up with a brand, a brand identity, brand values and to come up with positioning. Was there a reason that you decided to focus on that part of the marketing mix? Was that to do with your design background? Yeah, it's definitely to do with the design background. You know, I can I can go back as far as Newcastle College and remember liking the projects that were more brand-led. And at the time, obviously back then, it was very much more of a produce a logo, apply it to a few things, make it look consistent, which was fine. But I enjoyed those projects. Um, and then in my first five years we, you know, we worked on a couple more projects like that i just always enjoyed them but it's, it's only when i matured a bit more into my career got a greater understanding of what a brand actually is is how suddenly i realized how important and how valuable it is uh, to the point where for me it is the most important thing and everything else is then secondary you know whether people want a new website a video you know want to go to an event or a trade event whatever that is that for me that is just the thing that is required at some point. And to some degree, there's no point in doing it if you don't actually know what you stand for in the first place. So to get your brand right and the platform right and understand who you want to be in the world and then also bring other people into that company so that they can follow in that direction that you want to take as an organization is critical to the success of any business. Um, So that's what drove me because for me, it is the most important thing. Um, And it obviously comes as part of that process. Visual identity is an output, but it's only a small part of a brand because the brand is the whole company and everything that it does. Yeah, I think that's really important for us to maybe dwell upon for a little bit longer. I think um, that if you went out onto the street and asked somebody who didn't work in the marketing industry, tell me what a brand is, their answer would be, it's a logo. They might go a little bit deeper into that and say it's a logo, a specific set of colour schemes or a specific set of fonts. They may even say it's a specific strap line or set of strap lines. But I don't think you get much more than that from the man on the street. And I think that's exacerbated by quite a lot of uh, ways in which the media portray 
portray brands as well. I mean, uh, I always think about, and I should never watch this program, I really shouldn't, but I always think about The Apprentice. And every year on The Apprentice, there's an episode where he asks them to come up with a brand for a specific product. Sometimes it's, it's been an airline, sometimes it's been a, a children's toy. And effectively, all they do is they go off, they get a designer to come up with a colourful logo for them, and maybe they'll put a strap line under it. And that's what they think a brand is. But of course, from what you've said, there's a lot more to it. So for those of us who just think that that a brand is logo and colours, tell us exactly what goes underneath that and why it's such a lot more of a detailed process to go through. No, sure. I mean, yeah, you've just mentioned The Apprentice there. And yeah, unfortunately, it puts our industry in a very bad light. Yeah. Um, you know, you have people telling a designer to push things around the screen until it looks as bad as possible and then present it to the world. Um, so it, make, it makes us look like we we just get told what to do by other people. And um, I don't see that to be the case. Um, one of the first slides I'll put into a presentation when we're speaking with uh, some, someone we might start to work with is the question, what is a brand? Mm-hmm. And like you say, it's because it's so misunderstood. The word brand now, unfortunately, has become, for most people, just the visual bit of the identity. Um, and they don't understand properly what a brand is. So I, I say, what is a brand? And then I basically say, it's not just your logo, it's everything that you do. Now, we go through a process of running a workshop with with people, obviously key stakeholders or a founder or whatever it might be, to understand their business as much as we can. And there's a number of things that we cover from understanding their audience or audiences, because there's normally more than one. Um, We'll talk around positioning and personality. We'll discuss brand values. But what we're trying to get to, if they haven't got it in place already, is a particular framework. And the framework that we use will consist of a brand purpose, which is ultimately why you even bother doing what you do. What is the point of your existence on the planet? And why would anyone care if you didn't exist tomorrow? So that's a really compelling statement that says, this is our reason for being. And in theory, once it's written and you believe it, it should never change because you should never achieve your purpose. You should always be striving towards it. Mm. Um, so that's what that's like the top level. Then we look at vision and mission, which obviously work closely with the client. So where do you want to try and go to? What are you, what are you saying to yourself and the wider team of where you're taking this company? Um, and then the mission is kind of how are you going to get achieve that vision? How are we actually going to do it? And then we look at brand values. So, you know, what are your behaviors, the way you want to operate, the way that you're going to recruit talent? How are you going to do that around a, a set of values? And we might try and work with them to pick out any kind of points of difference or unique selling points. But it's the written document behind a brand that is critical to its success and the visual identity that we produce, which is a big part of the work that we do, is intelligent design based on the words that that company wants to stand for. So if we have a set of values that we've agreed, we will make decisions based around typeface, color, tone of voice, everything that they say they want to be. Our job is then to try and amplify that in a visual form. But equally as a business, they need to make decisions using the words in that document to say, how quickly do they answer a phone call? How quickly do they respond back to an email? How do you sign off an email? What's your induction program? What's your recruitment program? All of those things should be framed by the words within that document and what you stand for. And if you do that well, it creates complete consistency and it will attract the right audience. Now, that might only be 20% of the world, 50% of the world. It doesn't matter that people don't like you. Is, is about attracting the people that do. 
Yeah, and I think it's very important to understand that everything is included within your brand. I mean, you've mentioned things there like um, induction courses and, 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 and bringing people on. Customer service is part of your brand. The experience that you give to your customers is part of your brand. Now, that experience will be based upon the values that you set for yourself, but undoubtedly, it's part of your brand. I always think of Ryanair. I mean, Ryanair is not my favourite airline, I have to say. Um, They stand for low airline fares, but in my mind, they also stand for pretty lousy service. They don't look after you when things go wrong, and the experience is pretty grim. But that's okay, because that's what they've decided to stand for. So to be perfectly honest, if you're a customer and you're not happy with that sort of service from an airline like Ryanair, then actually you've got nothing to complain about because that no. is actually what they stand for, isn't it? Well, well exactly, because you, you want a low price. So if you're going to pay less for something, you're generally going to get something that's not as good quality. Mm. And that's the same for a pair of shoes as it is with a flight. You know, you, you could probably buy the same pair of shoes four times in a year compared to buying a better pair of shoes that last you three years. Mm. Um, you know, and people make that mistake very often, but it's, it's all driven by price isn't it ultimately and i quite often use virgin as a brand to try and get the point across about how values should work and how they should be celebrated and i think virgin throughout the years has had an element of fun Mm. in in all of all of its brands and it's interesting how it, it shares its values across all of its businesses and it dials them up and down depending on product and the service and the audience so virgin trains when it was operating you know, who would have put a comic comedy kind of message in the toilet if your one of your values wasn't around being slightly more fun and challenging? Yeah, and other train servers won't do that. Um, and although it's a, a kind of a, a non-entity, the first time you hear it, you kind of raise a smile. You probably go and tell the person you're traveling with, and it adds a bit of fun to the journey. And in the same way that Virgin Atlantic decides to have a bar instead of sixteen more seats, for me, is a decision made by the likes of Richard Branson to say, well, I want to attract people to fly us in the first place. And maybe what might appeal to some of my customers is the fun element of mm. being able to step up, walk down to a bar, go onto a bar stool and have a beer with a random stranger flying to America. Whereas BA wouldn't have offered that. So you, I think you win the battle earlier on in that process because you're attracting the right type of person. Um, and the element of fun is still celebrated, but in, a different way because you're yeah. paying a lot of money to fly Virgin Atlantic comp- compared to being on a train from London to Manchester. Yeah. But but you can see it in the heart of the business that that is a thing that they celebrate. And it's interesting, again, you started by saying work on what your, your ultimate goal is, work on your mission, and then you start talking about your values. I'm a massive fan of companies setting out that vision you know, even even if you even if you say something like I'm on a mission to make marketing simpler for people, you know, at least you've got a, a direction you're going in. And so many companies don't even have that. But what we don't really talk about that much is how we come up with these brand values. And it'd be interesting for you to talk talk me through the process that you would go through with one of your customers when they come to you and say, Okay, let's work on a brand together. Let let's not Let's assume that the logo and the and the colour scheme and everything, yes, that's going to come out eventually. But how do we get to those values? So obviously it depends on every customer whether they've even got any. Yeah. Um, and, and sometimes, or a lot of the time, actually, people don't have anything in place. 
Um, sometimes it's been written in a Word document and partly shared or sits on a server somewhere. Other times it might have gone as far as framing it in a corridor, but never ever reference it. And other times people seem to embed it quite well, but I think even then in, in the day-to-day -day and the busyness of a marketing team, decisions can be made and people forget to actually make the decision based on values. Mm. But wherever anyone is in that journey, let's say they're in the space where they don't have them or they have some, but it definitely needs work. Um, one of the exercises that we'll run with people to kind of tease values out of them. So instead of just saying, what do you want your values to be? And people will come up with the same things all the time, like professional and innovative, <laughs> which, which don't, don't mean anything at all. Um, you're not going to get anything from that. And even if you showed them a load of words that they could pick from, again, they're going to pick the same words that most people would pick. So what we do, we try and come from a point of hate or dislike. Yeah. And the reason we do that is because you'll end up with a stronger value. So we'll ask people to consider things that have frustrated them in life in general. So that could be customer service at a hotel, a restaurant. It could be how someone cuts you up on a motorway. Anything that just annoys you. Um, and then also what specifically frustrates you maybe in the industry that you've resided in and maybe that's why you decided to set up a business in the first place because you thought, felt you could do it differently mm -hmm. so we try and get people onto their soapbox to have a good old moan about things and we find that if you can galvanize that kind of frustration and despair then you can work through well what is that feeling that you want to avoid so if, if that is giving you that particular feeling because you don't like it and it frustrates you, what are we trying to avoid? And then the opposite to that will become a really strong value for you mm. because it's the opposite to what you don't like. So then suddenly your value becomes really strong and you'll stand behind it and celebrate it. Whereas if you come from like, what do you want your values to be? They become quite average. Yeah. And so you don't, you don't become a stronger brand as you could do. I think that's a really interesting angle. I've never never heard it articulated like that before. And and again, I would agree with you. There's so many companies will just prefer to use, well, we're we offer a professional service or we're friendly, we're efficient. Well, let's just take all of that for granted, shall we? Yeah. You know, how do you actually stand out? And and I just love that way that you're turning it from something, you know, if I went back to my Ryanair example, I could be saying, Well, I absolutely detest the way that Ryanair treat their customers if something goes wrong. I mean, they effectively leave them stranded wherever they, wherever the plane is. Um, so I could s turn that around and say my value, if I was doing an airline, was never to, never to leave anybody stranded, always to bring them back to where they should be within a certain time, et cetera. Exactly. Um, and, it, and, and for us, a lot of it, uh, hence why, why we called ourselves Dawn as well, is, is trying to take people out of the dark and into the light. And so the whole workshops are based on these kind of two extremes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So each part of the workshop we run will be based on, okay, well, how do we get from things that we dislike to things that we really think we could stand for? Yeah. Um, and you've got to have those opposites to really push people as far as you can, because the stronger the brand values, the better decisions you'll make within the business, whether that's from operations or engaging with third party software, whatever decisions you're making or the people that you hire, will become stronger and they'll all want to stand for something so you get a better team and then from a visual identity perspective those values being so compelling we can make braver and bolder decisions in the visual identity and the typefaces that we pick and the tone of voice and the character that it has 
Um, you can make a real commitment to something mm. and then it galvanizes people. It gives them the pride to work for that company. They become ambassadors as well as people that work there. And then you attract similar minded people that want to buy your product or engage with your service. Exactly. And once we've established these values and you've done the work and there's also now a visual identity and we might be using some words, we might even be using some taglines, the company is going to start growing. And one of the problems when you have a company that starts to grow and you bring new people in, yes, you will give them an induction to learn what your brand values are and what you stand for and all of that stuff. But as companies get bigger, it is harder to keep everybody singing from the same hymn sheet. So as companies become bigger and more successful, how do you get them to stick to those brand values? Now, you know, we you often hear it rather derogatorily referred to as brand police. You know, yeah. I've had conversations yeah. in the past, oh, Roger, you can't put that logo over there. There needs to be at least three quarters of an inch around it or 3.2 centimetres or whatever it might be. And the Pantone colour of that blue is just slightly off. It needs to be reprinted. And you always get, you always bristle at that, don't you? But in some respects, you have to have somebody who is the gatekeeper for all of this. But how do you do it? How do you make it happen without it becoming some sort of obsessive uh, uh-huh. obsessive uh, obsession? <laughs> yeah, it's, um, no, it's a funny thing. I only had a conversation a couple of weeks back with, with a client about it as well. I mean, part of it is the appetite of that business as well, because I think from a values perspective, um, it's not something that you write, stick on a wall or maybe refer to every quarter. It's got to be something that is basically worked on every single day. So yeah. it, comes, it comes from the top and then it's got to go to the next level of directors or managers and they've all got to be accountable. They've got to make sure that they behave in that way every day. Mm-hmm. But when they're, when they're trying to innovate within the business, they innovate within that framework and the words that the, that the brand says that they stand for. And if people can see that day to day and see people making decisions and say, no, we can't do that because we stand for this, even though we could make money doing that, we're not going to because this is what we stand for. That that itself gains massive respect within the team and other people will follow mm-hmm. and behave in a certain way. Mm-hmm. When it comes to the visual side, like you're saying, unfortunately for us, everyone is creative to some degree. Um, and so they think they can do things that they want to do or they get bored of their own identity quite quickly and they want yep. to try and freshen it up or bring a bit of life to it, which basically means it'll deteriorate quite quickly and it becomes weaker quite quickly. So the investment you made um, has been eroded. Yeah. So you do need to take control and guidelines can take it so far, but the term guidelines is exactly what it means. It's a guide um, and they have to evolve too over time because the world around you changes. And I was only chatting this morning about this is you mentioned a couple of interesting things like exclusion zones around logos and exact color palettes and things like that. And I think we're in a space at the moment where some of those things don't even exist anymore. An exclusion zone around a logo is probably going to cause you more problems in the modern world than it would have 20 years ago just just for print because a social avatar might not allow you to do that. If you decide to advertise around a football ground, you're working within a landscape um, rectangle. Yeah. Your logo would be forced to be tiny in that space because of those rules. Um, you know, even even choosing color now, you know, RGB is probably more prominent than some of the other colors because mm. so many things are digital. So, should we all be leading with um, color values based on RGB if ninety percent of your comms is digital? 
maybe that's the space that we need to be in. But once all those decisions are, are made or some of the old rule book is broken down, you do need people in place. And unfortunately, I think brand director, creative director doesn't exist in most companies. It just doesn't exist. Yeah. And a marketing director might, and they might understand the brand and try and protect it, but they wouldn't do it in the same way as a, a creative or a designer or a brand-led person. So unfortunately, you, know, you, you mentioned brand police, and I've heard the term quite a few times. Unfortunately, it does need to exist, very much like a car mechanic needs to operate in a certain way to make sure that your car, car is roadworthy. We wouldn't complain about that no. if it was done right. An architect making sure his drawings are correct so the building can actually stand up and keep people safe. We wouldn't complain about that. So it's unfortunate that brand police becomes a tag and people might complain about it. But if you want to protect your investment and attract the right people, keep consistency and have pride in, in, in what you're offering, then unfortunately, yes, it does need to be controlled. And, and we try and get close to our clients to make sure that happens. I had a, heard a really good analogy of this from a, from a friend of mine quite a while ago, and he described it as almost like, imagine that you're running a Michelin star restaurant, you've got three stars. And this is probably an extreme example, but you know that you, your, your table setting will have to be, you'll have a certain sort of crockery, you'll have a certain sort of um, cutlery, and you'll put the salt cellar or the salt grinder in a certain position. And you almost have to maintain those levels of standards to keep your Michelin star. But what might happen is you get a new uh, maitre d' comes in and he might think, oh, do you know what? I prefer putting the salt cellar or the salt grinder over on that corner. And as the owner of the restaurant, you go, no, 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 no. You've got to put that salt cellar back where it is because that's the standard that we've set. And that's what our star is developed upon. Now, I think it's probably a bit of an extreme example, but I just quite like that analogy because it was a, it was just a little bit different. Yeah, no, exactly. And there, there is that precision um, in our work um, and it does need to be upheld. You know, there's, there's enough examples of successes of brands, whether you, whether you pair Coca-Cola against Pepsi. Mm. There's a complete consistency with the Coca-Cola brand over the years. Um, and Pepsi seemed to flip-flop from one identity to another um, and sometimes appeal to very niche markets. Mm -hmm. um, and so global sales aren't as high uh, yeah. because of it. And consistency is, is key. And I think consistency, sometimes the word people think consistency means boring. Yeah. Now, I think you can stay current, which means you evolve, and you can stay fresh and you can create fantastic campaigns that engage your audience. But there's a bedrock of consistency there because you want to have that trust. You want to build up the loyalty. You want repeat business. And that, that comes with behaving in a certain way. It's very much like my own friends. You know, if they behave randomly every time I met them, I probably wouldn't meet them as often. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> they're consistent and we all have similar values and and we behave in similar ways and we like each other's company, then obviously you stay friends for a long, long time. Um, and I think sometimes brands are overly complicated when essentially for me they were invented because it meant that the founder could create a framework of how they wanted a business to operate. And then hopefully other people can follow it by saying, we have these values that we work to, which were probably influenced by the founder in the first place. Mm -hmm. But it gives everyone something to follow. And again, it doesn't hold you back for me. I think with having the values in place and a strong purpose, that gives you massive opportunity to innovate at every part of your business.
Yeah, and I think what we're, we're not saying to everybody here, you need to put together a 500-page brand manual yeah. with all sorts of different examples and examples of logos and colours and, and fonts and this, that, and the other and sizes and spaces around them. I mean your framework could be quite short, couldn't it? I mean, I'm a massive fan, as people who listen to this podcast know, of keeping things simple. And I think simple is always best. Com completely. I think guidelines are naturally getting reduced in size, and I, mm -hmm. think, they I think they should. I think brands are, are way too flex, as in, in a good way, they're way too flexible now. There's too many parts to it, you know, movement and sound, and the digital landscape means that there is a flexibility in your visual identity. But there's still a strength in consistency in color and typeface and tone of voice that's mm -hmm. enough to, to to bring it together um you know again people you mentioned simplicity people too often like to overcomplicate things yes um and people are guilty of putting in too many messages in any of the communication they want to do and don't realize that the audience will just won't see it they won't want to read it in the first place. And even if they did, they wouldn't remember it all. This is all really good stuff. And I think, you know, it is important to have these values, keep it simple. And I was actually thinking for a moment of going off down a tangent, because you mentioned there about companies rebranding, but we are sort of running out of time. And there is another thing I did want to talk to you about today, and that is the word positioning, which you have used um, as well. You offer this service to your customers too. Now, I have to say, again, probably because I'm classically marketing trained. So I've always believed that marketing is a process that starts with the customer. It goes through a process where you identify a customer need, come up with a product or service that meets that need. You then come up with some strategic goals. You develop the product, you price it, and you start putting together communications. And part of that, when you're looking at the customers you're going after, is what we call positioning. But it's not a term that I hear that often anymore, Dave. And I don't know whether it's just because I don't move in the same circles anymore, but I can't remember the last time I went to a conference and heard somebody talk about positioning. To be honest, I can't even remember seeing anybody write about positioning. But what is positioning and how does it fit with brand? Because they're obviously different things. Yeah, I mean, it can be quite a, a, a broad term and you can get into some very specifics if you're analysing your competitors and you want to carve out a niche as to where you're going to be positioned in that market. At a simple level, um, some of it can be related to price and we can't, mm -hmm. avoid, we can't avoid that. You know, if, if one of the exercises we sometimes run will be just a postcard exercise. Sometimes it's with car brands, sometimes it's with supermarket brands. Mm -hmm. But the idea is to try and tease information from people to say, where do you think you are positioned within your own marketplace? Now, that will come with a price point somewhere behind the scenes. But picking a price and understanding your overall value can determine, obviously, where you're going to sit in your marketplace as well. So if we take supermarkets as an example, I'm old enough to remember maybe Safeway existed at one point and, and Tesco, and they were probably the, the lower-ranked supermarkets from my, my, my memory. Mm -hmm. And then Sainsbury's was maybe just a slight step above them and yep. they possibly could have been Waitrose back then. And, and that was maybe the landscape. And then Tesco matures over time a little bit more. Um, Sainsbury's just stays ahead, I would say, from a slight positioning perspective, but they're, you know, they're not too far removed. And as they kind of grow and mature, it opens up a space in the market for someone else to come in. Yeah. And Aldi and Lidl come in and fill that space. And so everyone moves up a level slightly. Aldi and Lidl are in, 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 the, in the, the lower end. 
Tesco and Sainsbury's are somewhere in the middle, and we have Waitrose, Booths, M&S maybe in the, the, the higher ranks there. Now, that's some degree of positioning. Some of that is determined by price, but you can go deeper and look at the logos just at a very basic level and say, well, Aldi and Lidl pick primary colours for a good reason and quietly, quite badly designed logos, to be honest. <laughs> so primary colours, childlike, badly designed logos, the whole thing starts to suggest that this is a cheaper offer. The buildings are, are typically one-storey brick buildings. The food is packed in the cardboard boxes that it was delivered in. And overall, you'd expect your basket to be cheaper. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. People sometimes get positioned in wrong. They say, well, why would I want to be that then? I want to be the booths. And you go, no, but Aldi are brilliant at bringing a lower price basket to households. They're not, they're not going to give you food poisoning. It's not low because it's bad. It's just low because they've gone about it in a different way and they've cut away some of the costs within the business to present quality food to you at a greater price. And then you get to Tesco and Sainsbury's that typically have a two-color palette, have slightly you know, larger shops, slightly wider aisles, and a competitive basket. And mm. then you get to Waitrose and Booze, which is less stores anyway, but the, the buildings are slightly more architecturally designed. They're typically a bit smaller again. The aisles are probably wider and your basket's going to be more expensive. And you probably feel like, oh, I'm treating myself today. I'm going to go to Booze or Waitrose. And they've all carved out their own positioning within the supermarket world. And what we try and do with our clients is to educate them to say, look, you need to be positioned somewhere within your world, whatever your sector is. And we need to carve out that positioning between us so that we can understand how do we compete against our competitors and who's above us or below us from a price perspective, because that determines some of the design and the visual identity as well. Oh, you've just you've just sent a shiver down my spine there, Dave. I've not thought of booths for so many <laughs> years. I remember I remember growing up in um, Lytham St. Anne's and my mother's favourite uh, place to shop was Booths on Woodlands Road. Uh, but Booths is not a brand that we have up here in Scotland. I, I, I did I did, did live in the Lake District for a time and there are there were booths in the uh, Lake District, but I'm pretty sure there aren't any in Scotland. <laughs> Yeah, no, I've just come back from the lakes last week, so I was in and out of a couple of booths. Uh, <laughs> uh, they are they are nice stores, um, but yeah, we we try and shape that because it it means a lot in the work that we do. You know, if if we don't know where someone wants to be positioned, we can't really design anything because no. the design trick is to make something look either more cheap and accessible, which is fine because mm -hmm. that's what you're trying to say to someone. Or you're trying to make it look premium to say, well, if you're going to engage with this brand, you're going to have to spend some good money. And a lot of it comes down to simple things like space. Yeah. You know, if, if I'm running down Manchester High Street and it's raining and I run into a shop and I'm going to lift my head up, there's only three pedestals in the middle with a handbag on each one. I know I'm in an expensive shop straight away within seconds because there's space given to the product. Um, if I run again down the road and there's clothes and people fighting over them, I'm probably in a Primark or similar. Yeah. So mm -hmm. is space and allowing to have space, whether that's the width of an aisle in a supermarket space given to a product or space given to typography on a leaflet, the space will make it feel like it is a more premium offer. Because, sure. Cause that's one thing that is hard to find is to get your own space. And so that, that's how you can determine an output from a visual identity perspective. And so positioning, yeah, still is a thing. And uh, we, still, we still work on it hard with our clients and evaluate it from time to time as well. Because obviously, as I said, companies can mature and sometimes the positioning is slightly changing or they want it to change because, yeah. because they've started to produce better products maybe or a higher quality service. 
And again, the positioning is all also going to flow from the brand values that we spoke about earlier. And that reinforces what you said earlier on about the brand potentially being the most important part of what you're doing. Yeah, com- completely. The words behind the brand are the things that make the brand for me. And if, if people can hold themselves true to those words that they decided on when they either set up a business or go through a, a branding process properly, um, you'll be a stronger company for it. We've spoken about loads of different things today, Dave, and, and there's, to be perfectly honest, I could carry on asking you a few questions for the rest of the afternoon, but we do have to start to think about wrapping up the show. Now, what would be the one big thing that you'd like the listeners of the Marketing and Finance podcast to take away from your experiences building Dawn Creative and all the experience you have with building brands and positioning brands? I think I think the main thing is if, if you are in a marketing team, uh, you're running a business and you're doing what you do is to either ask yourself, do you have the things in place that you actually need, like a brand purpose and brand values? Um, and if you don't, I would consider going through the process of doing some research and trying to write it. If you do have it, ask yourself, do you actually use it regularly? Do you actually make decisions, business decisions on a daily basis by the words in behind the company? Uh, look at your brand values and think, how do I celebrate them more? And from a marketing perspective, instead of maybe people in a company saying, change this, do this, add this sentence, are we, are we pushing back enough mm. and protecting our brand to say, well, no, I won't do that because this is what we stand for. Be brave enough to maybe tell someone who's higher up in the organization that they're wrong um, because you're coming at it from a brand perspective, not from their own opinion. I think that's really important. And hopefully people listening to the show who may have thought that brand was more about just the visuals, hopefully we've given them some food for thought today. I mean, you've definitely uh, reawoken my interest in this whole topic simply by explaining that process you go through of getting people to start with the hate uh, and mm-hmm. then flipping it around. That's a really interesting angle. And uh, I'll probably steal that with glee in the future. Uh, thank you so much, Dave, for coming on the show this afternoon. It's been really, really interesting to talk to you. And as I say, I'm sure we could carry on talking for a lot longer if we actually had the time. So I'm hoping that people listening to the show might want to get in touch with you and maybe um, avail themselves of your services. So what's the best way that people could get in touch? Well, they can obviously visit our website and uh, get in touch via a contact us form. But um, the the general email address for the the agency is wakeup@dawncreative.co.uk. And the website is dawncreative.co.uk. Is that That, right? That's right. Yep. Fantastic. Dave, thanks once again for coming on the show. And now that the lockdown's over and the fact that I come from the Northwest, it's not inconceivable that I'll I'll be down in Manchester in the near future. So maybe we'll meet up and have a coffee or a beer at some point. Yeah, a coffee and booze, eh? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks very much. Okay, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Marketing and Finance Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends and colleagues and consider leaving me a review on iTunes. Until the next episode, keep marketing your business to keep growing your business.